That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. Welcome to Development Hell. For every horror movie that hits VOD, countless others end up DOA. Development Hell is the podcast dedicated to unearthing these cursed horror productions. We're going to find out what went wrong, and then decide if these titles still stand a shot at the green light. I am your host, Josh Korngut. I am the managing editor of Dread Central. I am also a filmmaker in Toronto, Canada. This podcast is a proud member of the Dread Podcast Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to a brand new episode of Halloween is Cancelled. That's right, we are taking a break from regular development hell content to bring you yet another mini-series of Halloween is Cancelled, where through the month of October, we discuss unmade Halloween sequels. I believe we are on our fourth episode this month, so we're almost at the end. And today we're talking about an alternate universe ninth film in the Michael Myers series. We are talking about Halloween, The Missing Years. So joining us for a second week in a row, we have Nick Phillips, a former development executive from Dimension Films. He joined us last week to chat about Halloween Asylum, but today we are also joined by Jake Wade Wall, a screenwriter, director, and author who also happens to be the writer of Halloween The Missing Years. Hi, Nick and Jake. How's it going? Going good. Nice. Hey, Josh. I'm excited. I'm, I'm back for the sequel. Wow. I'm, I'm, well, I'm you so, know what that uh, means. You, you, might not, you might not make it. I was you just going to say, I might get killed in the first this 10 minutes. This is it. Yeah. You're, you're Jamie Kennedy. Uh, Nick, can you reintroduce yourself to the development hell audience? Uh, my name is Nick Phillips, producer for almost 30 years now. I spent uh, nine years as an executive at Dimension, which is uh, ties into what we're talking about today. I was, did six years at Sony Screen Gems, co-ran my own uh, horror label, at which I made a movie with Jake called Revolver Picture Company. Uh, I've been a freelance producer. 
I was head of production for a couple startups, one called Creator Plus, one called Yale Entertainment. And now I'm uh, gearing up to start another horror label very soon, which I mentioned last week to you, Josh, and I'll be able to talk about soon. But that's uh, that's me in a, in a nutshell. And Jake, you know, this is your first time on the pod. We're really psyched to speak to you today. Could you do me a favor and just sort of give yourself a bit of an introduction to our audience? Yeah, I mean, I think I need Nick's help because I was just going <laughs> to say, hi, I'm a writer. But um, <laughs> so, no, but I've been a working screenwriter. I started as a playwright, actually, um, in New York. Uh, I had a play that went on off-Broadway when I was pretty young. And then from there, I moved to LA where I thought that that would be my winning ticket. And in Los Angeles, they don't care about theater. So I started my career as a screenwriter from the kind of ground up. And I've been very fortunate to be working for you know, many years in the, in the business and primarily in the horror genre business, which is a, a, a big passion of mine. And, um, you know, I also write, uh, you know, I've written books, I've written, I've directed some stuff. So that's, you know, I'm the guy that just kind of loves to do it all. I, I, in the business, I just get excited on all aspects of it from big productions to small productions, you know, movie, theater, you name it. I'm a huge horror nerd, and I'm very excited about your contribution to the horror canon. And we're going to get to that pretty soon. But I'm just going to start with a little bit of a chat with you, Nick. You know, after the financial success, but let's call it maybe like a mid-critical response to Halloween Resurrection, what were you brought on to do? Yes, after Resurrection, I happened to be assigned the task of developing, finding the way in the story and developing out from there the next Halloween movie, which, you know, on paper would, you know, was Halloween 9. Of course, we eventually would hopefully come up with a title. But yes, I was assigned to figure out uh, the best take and and work with a writer to bring Halloween 9 to life. Now, we're going to get to know Jake in literally just a second. But what caught your attention about his work and sort of what brought him into the loop at Dimension? I read um, a script by Jake very early in my career as an executive called Next Door. Uh, Really awesome, super clean. And I mean that like a good way, like really just just a wonderful little slasher movie, like actually very Halloween-esque. So it's not unfitting that I it would obviously make me think of Jake for uh, Halloween 9. But no, I, I and I'm friendly with still to this day with his agents. I actually mentioned them last week in another context, but I saw one of them at a show by mm-hmm. the band Ghost like three weeks ago, um, which was great. I, I read Next Door and it was so per- like perfectly written, had great characters. Jake's really adept at writing teenage characters, which is not easy. Um, you know, a lot of people just kind of write, you know, sort of stock, whatever. But Jake really captured their voice as well. And I, I just always... And I hope you feel the same, Jake. I'd always just liked his writing and, and I liked him as a person and always was looking for a way to work with him. So by the time Halloween 9 rolled around, I think we had gone back and forth on potentially working together on a few things, right? We had just always talked about, what if I maybe try this, maybe like this. So this was just a perfect way to kind of write and really develop something in earnest. Uh, and that was it. It just was a reading a great, the, the short answer to your question, Josh, is just reading a great writing sample by Jake and uh, one of many that I've read of his. So yeah, just reading his cool. good work and, and going from there. Well, Jake, I'm a big fan. We're going to talk about your larger titles in a moment. But to start us off, what's your relationship with horror? Where did that kind of start for you? Ay, ay, ay. I am the youngest of five mm. and my older siblings were obsessed with horror movies 
90s. And so, and I was a really big chicken. I was, you know, got scared at the drop of a hat. And it became kind of their, like, their intent when we were young was to scare the crap out of me every chance they got. And, and it always worked and it didn't take much, but somehow growing older, it just, you know, kind of a reverent throwback to childhood or my bond with my siblings and everything. But it's just something we always loved. And it's just kind of, I watched and, and they made me watch all of them, all mm-hmm. of the, the older ones that, you know, I was too young to see or, and it just, it was this really incredible kind of bonding thing that really kind of stuck. Was there a movie that like really messed you up as a kid? They're like, oh, really yeah. put you out there. Yeah. Um, and you know, I'm sure, I'm sure my brother would get, you know, labeled an <laughs> abuser for making me watch the exorcist in the first grade. Oh shit. Yeah. <laughs> that was pretty traumatic. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when I saw like The Omen when mm. I was in second grade, like nice. seeing these really intense movies really, really young. So um, those are kind of the two in Amityville Horror, the original. I mean, mm-hmm. it's the hell out of me. So, yeah. but I was watching them so young and, and that's why it's great getting older, watching them again and uh-huh. seeing them hold up, you know? So it's yeah. like, okay, I wasn't just scared. That was a good movie. Oh, yeah. Your siblings were doing the Lord's work with traumatizing <laughs> you with those ones. Uh, that's amazing. So I'm a little bit obsessed with your sort of contribution to the horror canon. Nick already knows I'm a big fan of, you know, the important franchises, and you've dealt with a number of them. So we're talking about When a Stranger Calls, The Hitcher, Jacob's Ladder, Cabin Fever. Out of all of these, which ones were you like the most connected to? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, you know, I, 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 and this is going to sound really cheesy, but I really do try when I take a project, I, I want to, I, I generally choose something that I'm passionate about. So mm-hmm. I was, I was passionate about every single one of those, of those titles. And I was very passionate about my take for all of them and, and the writing of them. So I, it's hard for me to kind of pull one out of the box. I had a very special relationship though with when a stranger calls because yeah. I when I pitched, hey, let's do the first 10 minutes and make that the whole movie. And you know, that's how I came got on board to do that. Um it was a very isolating movie to write because it's it's one person alone in a house. And so it was kind of fun to write that. But I, I had such a personal connection to that because I was terrified I was writing something that was just incredibly boring. I'm like, can you really pull off one person alone in a house? So that one I kind of, you know, has a special place for me because the process to write it was isolating and the movie was very isolating. And and I think Simon West did a really good job directing it. Does your theater background really come in handy for that? Um, you know, I, I have a, this theory that most people in the entertainment business, we all started in high school theater. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of like your first, or at least back in my day, that was, you didn't have film schools in high schools or anything. So I kind of... I, it's interesting. So many people I've worked with on, on all sides of uh, the business, you know, executives, we all kind of had a, that high school theater past. So mm-hmm. now I believe you haven't just written that you've also directed for film. Uh, last week, I was hearing really good things about Devil's Backbone, Texas. Can you talk to me a little bit about that project? Um, yeah, Nick produced it. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the project we did together. Um it yeah it's it's a it's a strange kind of it's a docu horror movie mm-hmm. so it's there are elements of it where that were based on truth i you know the short version is i had a very colorful father who kind of isolated himself on a ranch and 
had a very strange death. And so what I kind of talked to Nick one day and I was like, oh my God. And I showed him the pictures of how my father's house was left. And it looked like either he was a madman who lost his mind and chopped his house up with an ax. Or like he always said, he believed his house was haunted, which I clearly don't. I'm, that's, I'm not that guy. So I said to Nick, and we were talking about it, and he's like, why don't we get some cameras and go figure this out? So that was kind of the idea. So I actually interviewed, like, all my siblings are in it. I interviewed real people. So you're getting real stories of me kind of trying to figure out who my father was because we were estranged. Um, and in the process, in going through the journey, um, I took some really good friends of mine and we lived on an RV on this quote unquote haunted ranch and we scared the hell out of them. So we were, so they don't, they didn't realize they were going there to be kind of bait. And at the same time we were making a documentary that was kind of moving. So that's, that's the best way I can explain it. What's your relationship with like found footage horror? I've always been a fan. Yeah. You know, I am when it works. I just think it's, it just it's it's so it's so rewarding when it works because most horror I think most film people you know you watch a movie as a skeptic because you know the whole process mm-hmm. and sometimes a really good found footage film they can shut that part of your brain up and suddenly you're just a fan again and you're just you're terrified and you're you're believing it all so I'm a big fan of found footage when it works yeah it really can just make you believe I mean yeah. it speaks a lot to the to the modern sensibility right because that's how we ingest yeah. so much of our own media. Uh-huh. is home videos or news footage or what have you. Um, can I, yeah. I just want to in- interject for a second about Devil's Backbone. I mean, Jake, one of the things I really like about Jake is he is a like born skilled storyteller. And I don't mean just that as, as a writer, but when Jake sat down, he came into my office and he basically told him, you know, a much longer version of what he just talked about with his dad and these photographs of his dad's ranch. And I was like t- utterly compelled and hooked. Right. I mean, really it was, just in the room too. And I, I've, I've heard other pitches from Jake. I mean, Halloween included. He's just a really great, I guess, raconteur would be the word, right? He just really came in, told me the story. And yes, he's right. Like we got some cameras and, you know, like for example, the people that we needed to shoot the movie, we, you, like the whole movie was not a conventional film, right? It was like nothing I had done as a producer. You're not really producing a movie. You're sort of doing a documentary. You're also genuinely exploring this like supposedly haunted region of texas you're there in the middle of the night it's raining you know it's it's like crazy conditions um so like the dp we had was more his background was more like shooting like uh photographs and footage of the iraq war right like we needed somebody that was a little more versatile and nimble and and it just was a really cool as a producer a really cool challenge but i also thought not only did i want to tell the story because it's interesting but it just you know having a you know, I, my father passed away as well. And just, he was also a man, of, you know, just also a, a sort of a, a little um, uh, distance from him as well. I've, I found that to be relatable and I wanted it to be cathartic for Jake. So just for my two cents, making that movie was so, so interesting. And, and I hope Jake got something out of it and I hope the audience got something out of it, but it was just a really cool little uh, story to tell. And, and man, we pulled it off, but it was a weird uh, producing challenge for sure. Where can people watch it? Is it streaming? It's a really good question. That is, you know, it, Jake. Do you know? <laughs> it is. It's still streaming somewhere. I, I'm I going to Google be it for this. Yeah, let's but... find out. We got to help people can, out. Continue talk amongst yourselves. Well, okay, so as we find that out, something that Nick said that I 
appreciated was, you know, that you wear a lot of different hats. And before today, I didn't realize that you were an author and that you have written, not necessarily in horror, but in the like psychological thriller realm. Can you tell me a little bit about your, you know, work in fiction? Yeah, you know, um, I just, I, it, this sounds so nerdy. I just, I love to write and I love to read. And, you know, I was always that kid with it, his head buried in a book. And um, so we read everything. You know, mm-hmm. I, I don't, I, I wasn't just a horror genre guy. I write, you know, all the John Irvings, you name it, dramas, period pieces. But um, kind of my stab at it is um, I'm kind of a fan. My first two that I've written are uh, basically what I like to say, uh, grounded sci-fi. Mm-hmm. I like science fiction that feels very, very real. feels like it's, 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 it can happen or it is happening right now. So, um, yeah, my first book was... Um, Pangea and it's uh the science in it's really yummy and it's basically a story about what would happen if it's a tectonic thriller if the tectonic plates started to collapse and we reformed Pangea so it's just kind of a fun character story it's a it's a big concept told through some small characters moving across our country that's you know sold out of Dramamine animals are misplaced you know we've got a war on one continent coming towards us and it's kind of a you know, the theory is also, you know, other people's problems are now going to be our problems. So, you, so don't isolate. Kind of. Yeah, the- you use the science, like the f- fear of science a little bit, even in Halloween, the missing years. We'll get to it. But there was one moment where you make a joke about a movie where like some kind of animal sneezes on a plane and it starts a I, pandemic. I, I and never- I read that and I was like, oh. Uh, that sounds familiar. You know, it's funny. I re- I just reread it too before this. And I read that line and thought, holy crap. Yeah, that was chilling, but also it funny. Was. Yeah, yeah <laughs> so, that was weird. So um, you caused the pandemic. Um, yes. So, so, so Nick, did you figure out? It's on, on yeah, it is available to rent on all your major, uh, and it's on, on Google Play, YouTube, Vudu, Amazon Prime, Apple TV. It's called The Devil's Backbone, Texas. It is definitely worth a watch. Um, nice. Let me give that little plug there. But yes, all of those kind of uh, rent or buy platforms, it is there. All right, everybody, check that out. So I think it's time where we should officially sort of head into Haddonfield. Jake, how did you first get involved with the Halloween franchise and Dimension? Um, I got involved, as Nick had mentioned, um, he had read, Nick read a script of mine. It was my first spec sale. Um, and it was, as he mentioned, next door. And it was kind of my, my intention in writing that script was I wanted to go back to that kind of Americana Midwestern, you know, just that, that, that kind of, kind of classic slasher movie and so i it you know i sold it it got set up and nick read it and we had a meeting and nick and i just immediately hit it off we're both horror movie fans and um like he said they were the new halloween they were going to make the next halloween and so you know writers got to come in so nick read next door um i got a and i got a pitch and i came in way too too enthusiastically because I'm an Uber fan, always have been. So, and, you know, pitched and they, he liked it and, you know, I got hired. Yeah. Do you have any favorite of the Halloween sequels? Do any of them sort of hold a special place in your heart? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, it's hard because I want to, I, when I say Halloween 2, I don't know if you can really consider that a sequel since it's just more of the night he came home. I think you can. <laughs> but, you know, I kind of, I kind of put them together as one. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
but I really loved H2O also. Nice. I, I, was, I was a big fan of that one. That's the right answer. Uh, I, I mentioned Jake last week, and I just watched Halloween 2 last Saturday right mm. here in my garage. And I mentioned, yeah, that I would love to see someday, and I hope someone's listening, like a giant supercut of Halloween 1 and 2. So where it's okay. like this epic three-hour, like, you know, put in all the excised footage, whatever, find everything and make it just this huge, almost like they did with the Snyder Cut, right, where it came out on HBO <laughs> Max and it was four or five, whatever it was, yeah, four yeah, hours. Yeah. But yeah, because I mean, it is. That. It's just Halloween 2 is funny. It's, it is a sequel, yes, right? Uh, but it is really just a continue. It's just a real time continuation of the first movie, which I think yeah. makes it really cool. Release the Myers cut. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we're going to get very, very deep into the details of Halloween, the missing years. But before we do, I'm very curious, were there like rules or mandates that you were given for the script, such as like, did it have to take place at Smith's Grove? Were there anything that you had to include? You know, and Nick, please correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, because it was so long ago. I remember that when um, the only mandate when I first went in was pitch a take. Mm -hmm. And I and we'll get into how the missing years came about. But once we were there, Nick, didn't then after I get hired, a mandate come down the pipeline? Yeah. Yes. So and I I'll keep saying this. I'm sorry. I'll stop saying this. I should say I I mentioned this last week, but like. In rereading a few of these sort of uh, developed uh, sequels, it it really did become the mandate. Yes, Jake, where I was like, all right, we're really going to lean into the Smith's Grove of it all. Like that part was sort of that some something that became uh, part of any take that we'd really want to take seriously. And also, and again, we'll get into this with the missing years, is bringing back some legacy characters that really I think became important mm, to some folks. Right, had to mention, but yeah, like it just. It was a little bit of a mandate, but I also think in our just the course of our conversations, Jake, obviously in the take and your take and all that, like Smith's Grove just felt like a really logical place to go, like story wise and literally, right? For the story, uh, for the, you know, physically, like that's where they should go in the movie. So, yeah. um, yeah, it just, it sort of became a mandate. I don't think Jake's right. We didn't set these pitch meetings to be like, you must do A, B, C, and D. But over the course of hearing, you know, all these takes and pitches, it was like, oh, this kind of seems like a really good direction to go. And we did. Interesting. Now, we do have one of the suits in the room, but I am wondering, <laughs> what was your experience like with Dimension Films? What was that like? Um, <laughs> I honestly had a blast. It, okay. it, it, the, the, the people that were, at least I was working with and that were working with on Halloween, like Andrew Rona and those all those other people, they were there was a legitimate excitement I felt from mm-hmm. the, the execs like from Nick and they just, they seemed as excited to be working on it as I did. And it kind of, it was, it was inspiring. Um, and it felt fun. It felt like you were, it didn't feel like you were going to work. It felt like you were in the cafeteria at lunchtime, like giggling and talking about, <laughs> you know, nerding out on your favorite horror movies. So yeah. I had a, I had a great time. And I guess, this is not on my outline, but I'm kind of desperate to know. Were there any other franchises or sort of important horror series that you were in development on, but didn't sort of have a final cut for other than Halloween? Um, no, I mean, not, not, not necessarily. No, there was, you know, there were some other possible remakes that were in the works that uh-huh. uh, I was, you know, very much in love with that, didn't pan out like what 
Um, I set up, the, there's this very, if you're, this will prove how nerdy you are of horror films, if you know this, but there was a very strange, I want to say it was early 80s, a movie called Anguish. Oh, I've seen Anguish. Okay. I okay. saw Anguish in theaters not long ago. I mean, you are, <laughs> you are absolutely at the top of the scale now. <laughs> you almost remade <laughs> Anguish? I did. I set it up. <laughs> what? Um, yeah, I set it up with, um, I'm crazy. Getting, I'm terrible with names, but we, we got it set up and we, it was a really fun take and the script was, I was really, really proud of it. And, you know, we played, really played with it being, there was a real life crime and, you know, mm -hmm. like the strangers, everyone does like based on the true story horror movies. And so it was very much all took place in the cineplex and it's, you know, people watching a horror movie, not knowing the killers in the theater with them. It was a lot of fun. And we were, we were like seconds away from a green light. Uh, and then unfortunately that horrible, horrible, horrible shooting happened in Aurora mm -hmm. where the, the guy, you know, shot up an entire movie theater yeah. and everybody was crestfallen. And it was just one of those agreed moments yeah. of like, no one's going to make this movie now, no matter how good it is. And so that one, so that one kind of sucked. Holy crap. Who was going to play Zelda? They weren't there yet. They were literally, I think they were, were wanted to play Zelda. Oh God, Zelda. <laughs> was she, she was still alive. I think, um, I think she was. Yeah. That's, I mean, always I was not expecting that answer today. I will be yeah. honest with you. Uh, Nick, have you ever seen Anguish? <laughs> What's funny is Jake was just talking about how, you know, back then working at Dimension was like, nerding out at the lunch table that's like what we're doing right now oh, right yeah. so like it's still i just want everybody to know that still goes on right it, it, up to this very second um to be totally frank with you and this might lower my cred uh -oh. i have not seen anguish i'm sorry Lada. to say but i love that you i, I love john you were so i saw your face you were so genuinely pleased that jake had dropped that movie title I'm that was shocked. awesome <laughs> it's, it's it's really fucking weird it's movie. so weird and, it, weird it'll, fucking movie. and if anybody wants to go watch it, it will freak you out about eyeballs. Oh, yeah. If you have an eyeball issue, Don't. watch it. Yeah. <laughs> now I need it. to watch this movie. Yeah, I, I think I'm in. Oh. Okay. Oh, my God. Yeah, I got to – for some reason, the local, like, theater was playing it, and we went, and I – It's brilliant. I don't understand what I saw. So that's great. Um, sorry, everybody. I yeah. think that's, I guess, an appropriate note as any to uh, start digging into Halloween – the missing years. So let me sum up again. So every week we've been sort of getting into one of these unmade Halloween sequels. This week we are joined by writer Jake Wade Wall, by, by development executive Nick Phillips about this unmade Halloween 9. And I was very lucky that I was able to receive a copy of the script. And today the three of us are going to sort of dissect it or discuss it in detail. Um, but before we really start, Jake, can you tell us a little bit about why this was called Halloween, the missing years? Yes. Um, and, and I do believe in just to be upfront that the draft you read wasn't the final draft of what we did with it, just so we're crystal clear. But mm -hmm. the reason why it was called the missing years is, um, the intention of it was when I was going to come in and pitch a take for the next Halloween there, are, I, I've watched them all and I was sitting there, I was going through them all. I'm going through them all. And I kept, you always sputter over Halloween three. Cause you're like, okay, masks that melt kids faces. That's totally cool. But where the hell is Michael Myers? Right? So 
I kept bumping up against that. And then I kept bumping up against that. So the missing years, the intention of it was to address where was Mike Myers when season, when part three happened? Why wasn't he in Haddonfield? Why weren't we seeing him? Where was he? Did he take a Halloween off? So it kind of went down the rabbit hole of, and then that led me to, okay, wait a minute. If Mike Myers comes to Haddonfield one day a year, where is he the other 364? Mm-hmm. So I went down the rabbit hole and I got super excited. And I think that's what the, you know, the thing Nick heard when I came in was, you know, I felt like I'd cracked a mystery. I'm like, there's missing years. He was gone in Halloween three. We've got the <laughs> opportunity to sidestep this franchise, honoring everything that's already been laid in Haddonfield. And now let's go tell about his other life, you know, where he is most of the time. So that was kind of the intention was to address where, where else his other life. Uh, this script starts off with a bang, like, and it's actually like a pretty scary and emotional first few pages. We start off with the opening sequence from Halloween one. So it's 1963 and Judith has in the process of being murdered by her little brother. And I'm just wondering, Nick, like, what do we see in this opening image? I was re- when I read this, I was reminded of how much I love this opening sequence. I mean, really, like it. Uh, it yeah. <clears throat> excuse me, it's really it was just thrilling, right? Because it recreates Judith Myers's murder. Can I and then can I keep extrapolating? So then, yes, please. You go to Smith's Grove, and it essentially shows the night Michael escapes. You know, in the first movie, uh, the Carpenter's movie, from another point of view, right? So it's a little bit. It's a and we. I'm sorry, we spoke about this last week, but like the opening ten minutes of Halloween Kills, I thought was so awesome because it it, it like showed you the events of those nights from other like other cops on the force, their other perspectives. So here we are at Smith's Grove, and it's almost a little bit like Back to the Future too, where Marty keeps seeing stuff he did in the first movie, but he's like mm-hmm. looking at it, you know. So so that's what it reminded me of when I read it. So it's basically Michael's escape from Smith's Grove, um, but it shows you everything he did before he got jumped onto the car and jumped you know, knocked the, na- the nurse out and got into the car and drove off and the evil is gone from here. So, uh, you know, it, 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 it was just so fantastic. Cause not only is the escape logistically kind of cool, right? It's just, it, it has this great, uh, there's this long hallway, which plays later where there's a fence and on either side, one side is an inmate, one side walks a guard and there's like a, a chain holding them. And there's just this great, th- again, the, 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 the blocking and the logistics of the action um, but it introduces you. It also is great because it introduces you to Eve, who was a character we'll talk about later. But like I said, it just it shows you Michael getting jumping onto the station wagon and jumping into the station wagon, driving away, and all that from her point of view. So I love this opening. It is just such a great testament to how much Jake loves the franchise, and uh, also is just a great writer of sequences and characters. Mm-hmm. So I just thought it was a great way to open it because it, it it puts you, and not only that, but the next scene, which we'll also get to, but that opening sequence puts you right in the Halloween mood, right? Right in the Halloween vibe. It feels like a Halloween movie and it, it informs scenes from previous movies from the, you know, the, the great Halloween film of all, right? It informs that escape scene and shows you things that you didn't see in that first movie about how Michael escaped. So bravo. There's almost like a hint of scream Four in this, because we have a couple of different distinct openings, each one sort of more exciting than the next touch base a little bit about, the moment that we have Dr. Loomis. So Jake, can you tell us a little bit about how you incorporated that legacy character into this script? You know, it, it if I was going to be allowed to go back and fill in some blanks from the classic one that started it all, yeah. 
Um, and if I was going to be able to do that, I couldn't not address Loomis. Mm-hmm. He's he's classic, and he wasn't. I mean, he wasn't. He's he was wasn't he killed off already? In did real, he in die? The, did he die? I don't think so. Wait, sorry, Anyways, but he was also dead. So I think uh, not. Yeah, not Donald Pleasance was, was dead. dead at that IRL. Point. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, Donald Pleasance. So, sorry, my sorry, my daughter came up with asking. So yeah, Donald Pleasance was dead at this point, and then also dead as a character in the he franchise. Dies? Yeah. That's yeah, yeah, he does. So, so um, I just, my mind. I mean, he died twice. I mean, he dies at the end of Halloween does. too. Did he die in Halloween at, six? Yeah, off screen. It's a, that's a whole. You know what? That's a whole nother. Doesn't episode. doesn't count. Yeah, doesn't it's a whole count. other episode of your podcast. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Wow. So yeah, so I just thought I thought if I'm gonna do. If I'm going to be allowed to go back into this original and tell you some fill in some blanks, there's got to be a Loomis just for the fans. And even if he's only in there briefly and, you know, back then there wasn't CGI, wasn't really possible. So we weren't going to be able to make him 30. Um, So I just thought, you know, show him in the beginning with young Mike Myers dedicating his life to I am going to fix this boy and Mm -hmm. then get to the point of, oh, my God, he's a monster. You know, he's he's. He's, you know, unfixable, so. Yeah, I was very curious what a 35-year-old Dr. Loomis would look like, and I'm convinced he'd be kind of hot. So <laughs> that's my contribution. He did have very nice eyes, uh, Donald. Right? Pleasance. He did, he did. He really nice. He did. Yeah. He had a very nice, and the uh, style. nice style. Great yeah. style. Yeah, cool cool look, for sure. <laughs> um, but there is that great moment from Carpenter's movie, where he says, I spent, you know, spent the first eight years trying to, you know, right. what I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, I'm butchering this line, and then the next seven years trying to keep him locked up. You know, I think Jake, you want to touch a little bit upon like that, right? Like, all right, yes. where, where yes. did that pivot happen, Loomis? So, right, yeah, uh, it's a it's an interesting moment to explore. For sure. Mm-hmm. Sorry, we have a brief moment with Loomis, but like we see him with hope, and then we see him lose hope. Do you want to just talk about that moment with Loomis? Well, you know, he's such a fantastic character, and you know, in the franchise, and because he is hopeless, he mm. is adamantly hopeless oh, yeah. the moment he barges onto screen he just he eats the scenery up with how hopeless he is oh yeah so i just thought it would be a nice moment because he does is donald's a talented actor because he still has tender moments you know when he's waiting at the house or whatever so um you know i just thought it would be people don't wake up that hopeless i don't believe i don't believe people become so horribly jaded i think it's a process and so even though we had just a limited amount of time for Loomis, I just, I wanted to humanize him for a moment. I wanted to, I wanted you to know that he didn't start out a character version of himself. He was, there was a version of him that was a very hopeful doctor who, who wanted to help people and who thought Michael had a connection to Michael because this was the, this was the one he was going to crack. And this was the one that also made him hopeless. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's. It's a, a fun moment to get to see him come back. But yeah, this is also where we meet our one of our new lead characters, Eve. And I'm a big fan of her. And I'm wondering if you guys could just give me a little bit of insight onto who she is, what does she do, and how does she play into this story? Eve, yeah. I mean, Eve is kind of like, a, a she's the bridge character, right? She was there in the events of 78, 78 yeah. right? And then she becomes the kind of, um, her trauma, that trauma for her informs the rest of her life, right? And then so she becomes, again, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, she becomes kind of a the ear and the confidant of some of the other survivors, right? Like she's a mm-hmm. patient. One of her patients is somebody from another Halloween movie, which we'll get to in a minute, but I think Eve serves that purpose of being like 
an eyewitness to Michael Myers and almost a Loomis-esque character, right? Because obviously Loomis is not here, both mm-hmm. in the story and in, and in real life. So I think Eve serves as kind of that that bridge character, that confidant doctor who has seen the evil firsthand, but is still trying to help some of the people that have been traumatized by Michael. I think she, she serves, I, I would agree. serves that purpose nicely. Yeah, because you know, the, here's the thing. Also, if we were gonna, if we were gonna honor the all the original Halloween mythology, Haddonfield, if we're gonna honor all of that, and if we're gonna say, okay, but guys, there's some missing years you don't know about, and we're gonna now sidestep over to Smith's Grove and tell you about his whole experience there. I figured you would want Eve is basically having Eve be there the night he escapes and be our lead in the current film makes, it gives her credibility. She's not just some new random character. She's had an experience with Michael Myers and she survived and her voice is just as valid as anybody else from Haddonfield. Hence the missing years. We're, we're filling you in on the stuff at Smith's Grove you never knew about. And there's some big people and big characters that were equally affected. Well, something your script does that I thought was really fascinating is, I believe we kind of have these dual final girls of very different tropes. So we do get to have uh, the Laurie Strode trope who will come in in a moment, but we also have Eve who's something different and that we haven't experienced yet. And I really like to see how they sort of collide. One of my favorite moments in the script is when we re-encounter Lindsay Wallace. Uh, Nick, I would love it if you could sort of give us insight to what's happening here. Okay, so right after the opening escape from Smith's Grove, we kind of, um, we go to present day, right? Which I think at the time was 2005 or something. And we have a classic, again, this is where the first, not that the rest of the script isn't, but those first few scenes are so Halloween-ish, right? Not just the holiday itself, but the movies. So then you have the classic babysitter set up. She's on the phone. Uh, this is Langley we're introduced to, like our our, our babysitter character, our, our, our new, uh, who will eventually be our final girl, Langley, so talking on the phone. Uh, you realize in the course of her conversation, she's babysitting for Lindsay Wallace's uh, child, son, I believe. Yes, son. Um, and we see Lindsay again, uh, which I thought was great. And again, just to, to back up a little bit and go more macro, that really was part of what we were trying to do is bring back some of these legacy characters, which again, they were, I'm so glad they eventually did. I guess it just wasn't the right time for that in 05, but they eventually did do it in Kills, um, which I thought was super cool. Uh, but yeah, we are introduced to Langley, our babysitter. So you have a classic, uh, uh, you know, Halloween night babysitter on the phone setup, which we see in several of the movies, of course. And we meet Lindsay, who is, you know, in a way, a lot like, uh, uh, a lot like, um, Lori was portrayed in some of the uh, older movie and some of the later movies where got a glass of wine in her hand, you know, she's obviously, you know, she obviously has some, some demons, some scars and, uh, you know, I mean, spoiler alert, right? I mean, Lindsay is uh, off camera, is dispatched. <laughs> Lindsay's there and she becomes the one of the first, you know, um, modern day timeline, you know, present day timeline kills in the movie. Granted, again, off screen. But yeah, that's our first legacy character we see briefly uh, coming back. And I thought it was I thought it was a great idea. What's funny is what made it so and I just might you might have be anticipating this question or I might anticipate this question, Josh, is. At the time, no one really knew who Kyle Richards was anymore, right? And I don't mean that's a slight to her at yeah, of all. Course. Yeah, but if, if if you had said, "Hey, let's bring back Kyle Richards," most people would have gone, "Who?" But then, would you know, fortuitously or serendipitously, 
you know, Real Housewives happened. And so when she came back for kills, it was like, oh, my God, that's so that's so odd because it really was her. It's like, oh, the, yeah. like they weren't they weren't stun casting a Real Housewife. That obviously was Kyle Richards as a child uh-huh. in the first movie. So, um, yeah, we you know, we would talked about doing that. And but at the time in that context, it was meaningless because she didn't have as much uh, cachet as she does now. Do you think you would have brought her back anyways? I, I mean, we'll get to that. I mean, because you and I talked a little bit about that with, with some of the other scripts last week, Josh. It's like, no. I mean, I, I, I and I think to to the end, I think it's one of the reasons why, you know, this iteration, why Halloween Night itself probably didn't happen is because it was just easier to go back and remake the first one as opposed to trying to bring back the Lacey characters. It's not like you're bringing back known actors. I and mean, we just kind of hit that wall mm-hmm. from a marketing perspective from an executive perspective, people would go, okay, that's great for you, for the geeks in the room going, oh my God, let's bring back Charles Cyphers and Kyle Richards. And you know, who I can't remember. I'm sorry. The kid that played Tommy Doyle, but like, it just doesn't matter to the general public. I mean, teenage moviegoers at that time would have, again, would have been like, who, who the hell are mm-hmm. these people? So no, I mean, if, if it was up to me, sure. We would have brought her back as Lindsay, <laughs> but uh, no, I don't think we would have. And we didn't, you know, the answer is kind of, it's already happened. I, we very quickly also encounter a couple other legacy characters and survivors. So we have Jimmy, who is the ambulance driver and kind of gets knocked out for most of Halloween too. Yeah. And we also are seeing Sheriff Brockett in like a really exciting showdown with Michael. Um, I know we've been giving a couple of these to Nick, but Nick, I'm just curious, like, what are we seeing here with, with uh, Jimmy and with Brockett? I love to bring him back, Jimmy. And I, I think Jake, you did as well, because again, we've already established we're both fans of Halloween too. And he's such an affable guy, but yeah, he poor Jimmy like slips in blood and concusses himself. And it's just like, really gets it, bad. it does, you know, it, it, what a horrible, <laughs> I mean, it, what it's just an unfortunate uh, thing. So uh, I love to bring him back, Jimmy. I mean, that, that whole notion of like calling together all of the survivors, whether they're known actors or not, I just thought was so interesting, at least on paper and in a room talking with Jake about it. So yeah, we see Jimmy coming back. He calls into like a local radio station and, you know, does the, I guess like uh, Paul Rudd did in part six, right. But just saying he's coming back tonight. I know he's going to come back. And Jimmy turns out to be a patient of Eve's who's now, uh, again, I think practicing uh, psychiatrist and, and Jimmy's uh, a patient in her practice. So we get our next character and then bracket as well. And Jake, you can speak to that. I mean, I love bringing back bracket is again, kind of a Loomis esque character and almost like a, like an Ahab, right? Like Michael Myers is his white whale. So I, I, Jake, I mean, Jake, you can talk about that too. I think the idea of bringing back those legacy characters is really exciting for us. Yeah. You know, that was, that was something that was really fun about this film when, when we were working on it uh, was the notion of giving Michael Myers a bit of method to the madness. So instead of just random killing, like there was something really exciting about, because you find in Halloween one and two, he's got a purpose. He's not just willy nilly killing. So Mm -hmm. what I loved about the missing years was giving him purpose again. He's, he's cleaning up his mess. He's getting everybody that survived one of his movies. He's going to kill them. He's going to get them, which is ultimately, which we'll get to later, what gets him to Smith's Grove on Halloween night, you know, which, which is hence why he misses Haddonfield for a night. But, um, you know, so the bracket character for me also is interesting and going a little bit of foreshadowing with Loomis, you don't start hopeless you don't start broken, you get there. And and for me, Sheriff Brackett has the absolute 
want like perfect reason to get there. Myers yeah. kills his daughter, mm-hmm. you know? So it just, it just felt organic and it felt like a, uh, something fun to do with another legacy character. Right. Yeah, definitely. And we have this kind of scary moment where Michael is about to get him and out of nowhere, he protects himself in a, it's a panic room. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that would have been sick to see on screen. Yeah, I know. I, I, was well, I, I think if I'm, I've made some notes on, I think this is the scene where it's got just one of those classic jump scares, Jake, uh, where I think he turns off the, turns off the lights and Michael's like getting reflected in the TV behind him. I mean, I love little stuff like that. And Jake is very adept at those kind of classic, um, really great atmospheric jump scares, which are fun to shoot and stage and all that. So I did make a note of being like, Ooh, I kind of jumped just reading that. I know. (laughs) And I'm sorry to take up. We've passed it already, but one of my favorite scares in this script is when we meet Langley, who spoiler is our other final girl. And there's this, whole sequence where she's the babysitter of Benji and we the expectation is that Michael's gonna kill her and Michael is stalking her through the house and it's so spooky and very Halloween one and she gets out she escapes and then you realize oh like he's there for Lindsay and it subverts it in like a pretty dark way because you realize what's gonna happen so yeah that was a scary section for me thank Um, you it's a fun one it's a it's, we're gonna jump all over the place but since we're here what is michael up to like you're saying he's cleaning up his mess what is he doing in this film like because i think it's probably the crux of it all yeah so like going back to um you know where was he during during part three right well yeah. part one and part two happened and then you know if you get in the mind of michael myers which, you know, it's probably like, oh, shit, I've got a mess to clean up. You know, I've got <laughs> or loose ends. And like I said, I don't know. I, there was just something refreshing to me about that that I wanted to give. Like I said earlier, I wanted to give him purpose to his kills and not make it willy nilly. But I I would like to envision in this Halloween, because it's it's technically the last that was written of the original franchise. But I, I wanted to play with this notion that, okay. What if Michael did this? What if in in this last movie, he cleaned up all of his loose ends? Would that be it? Would it be over? There are no more survivors for him? So I I wanted you, the audience, to think maybe he's cleaning things up. Maybe he's wrapping things up. Maybe Mm -hmm. this is his purpose. And then surprise, you know, our Smiths, I mean, our our Groves kids fucked that up. Yeah. Now there's new survivors. It's because he couldn't get both of his sisters that like put spun him out of control. Like that was, was that where I, I the psychology so. of the stem from? I, I think so. And that's why in that yeah. intro section, you know, where they have little Lori Strode in the, in the atrium where he can watch her and he has no reaction. So weird. You know? Yeah. Interesting. So, I'm, I'm so, yeah. And Nick, did you want to add to that at all? Yeah. The atrium thing is great by the way. And it, and it plays a lot later, but again, it's like a, you know, just as a suspense device and, and um, you know, the way it's constructed and the way it would have been shot, I, I really love. And it, to introduce it there, and obviously, you know, that's a great writing rule that if you introduce something in the first act, it has to pay off in the third act. So seeing that atrium um, used in such a great, effective way early on and then seeing it used again for suspense and some fun kills later. Uh, so, no, I, I, I love that setup there. Um, but again, yeah, the, just to say one more time, the first, whatever it is, 20 
some pages just really set up a very Halloween-esque, um, you know, world. It really just feels like it's in that world of the Halloween universe. Yes. If that makes sense. Uh, you know, I and if I could just jump in really quick, you know, I think that's what was – Nick and I were so – and I don't want to speak for you, Nick, but he, I felt like we were both so very excited because we were fans. Right. And we were making a Halloween movie as fans, for fans. And I think that's why – we were so excited about honoring the legacy characters, even if they were just coming back to be killed. But, you know, it was <laughs> something fun. It was like, you know, sometimes you want to save the studio, earmuffs, Nick. Um, sometimes you want to save the studio. You know, the people that are buying these tickets are the fans. So right. let's let's make a movie that the fans would really eat up. Fill it with right. Easter eggs and names. But, you know, at the end of the day, there are marketing departments. I mean, I get that part of it. Yeah. No. Mm-hmm. Anyway. So I think we're at a point where we have two worlds that are starting to develop. We have the world of Eve, who is this doctor type character, who's a survivor of Michael Myers, who's starting to unravel the mystery of what's happening right now. And we also have the world of our young leads, sort of these archetype of teenagers, sort of like we see in the first film. So there's Eve and there's Langley. And I think this is when we're starting to meet Langley's group of friends. So we have... Brianna, we have Brad. I kind of want to talk about who these kids are and what they're like. And I'm wondering which of you guys sort of wants to sort of introduce us to Brianna and Brad. I'm going to give Jake that one. They, oh, yeah. they, they, sprung, they, they sprung from his mind. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm saying that in a good way. You know, I would say that one of the things that was fun for me was Haddonfield captured Midwest America. I mean, that's, that's, it, it's, you know, that place, you smell it, you can feel it, you, you got it. And I, you know, grew up in small town America. There's a lot of those towns. So I love the notion that from Carpenter's original, there's Smith's Grove. It's, it's in the first film. It's, 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 it's a, it's something that's been there all along. So I just loved the notion of, you know, really expanding on that kind of Americana. You have rival football teams, you have, yeah. You know, they play each other in, in sporting events. And, you know, so I just thought it would be kind of fun to open that world up to, you know, and at this point in the franchise, kind of go back to the Midwest in that kind of small town feel. Um, but to see it from a different town, but a town that's still connected to Mike Myers. They've got their history with them and right. still connected to Haddonfield. So I just thought it would be kind of fun to play around with, you know, teenagers and how everything is so life or death. That you know, it's it's their Romeo and Juliet story. It's right. you know the cheerleader from yeah. Haddonfield who's dating the quarterback from Smith's Grove. I mean, it's you know it's a little cheesy, but it's fun for those kind of movies. I think. Yeah. I never considered Smith Grove as its own place, and of course it is. So that's something I found very interesting about the script is sort of the culture of Smith's Grove versus the culture of Haddonfield and and the rivalries that were there. Um, I mean, he spent more—he spent more of his life in Smith's Grove than he did in Haddonfield, technically. And he was there for fifteen years, right? Before he escaped, he was there for fifteen years, and and you know, one one thing that in one of the the dichotomies between the town towns, which is nice, is that Halloween is banned now in Haddonfield, so it's like their outlet to go to Smith's Grove, right? And Mm -hmm. and the other, Jake was talking a lot about the the Romeo and Juliet, you know, how everything's life or death and romance is so big, but also tradition, which is a thing that comes up a lot. Mm-hmm. In this uh, script, right, and I remember that from my school. It was like, oh, every year we got to go to this, or you know, one person always does this, or you know, like there's always those little things that people hand down 
you know, in, in you know, the, this this party has to happen every year. We, we always go to this bridge, you know, on, you know, on this holiday to celebrate what have you. So I, it did it leaned into that very hard, too, which I loved that, that yeah, these yeah, kids have think about their it. own traditions. Yeah, because like if you're a teenager in Smith's Grove, you've you have aunts and uncles and brothers and sisters who worked at that institution who came home and told Mike Meyer's story, the kid that yeah. wouldn't talk, you know, like yeah. so that's that's when I th- I got very excited about making Smith's Grove its own place, you know. Mm-hmm. He knew the orderlies. That person had a family. You know, people would go home from work. That institution's probably the biggest thing in that town, you know, employing mm-hmm. them. Yeah. So I just thought there was such a I love that Smith's Grove in that script, they own their Mike Myers legend too. It's just right. different from Haddonfield. Right. And that is, you know, if you think about it, every Halloween, where's Mike? He's in Haddonfield. So if you want to be safe, go to Smith's Grove. Well, that's <laughs> what they think. That's why every Halloween night, they go into the old abandoned asylum, you know, kind of with their little rituals, their little traditions, you know, and kind of pay tribute to their version of Mike Myers because they have a history too. That was the intent. Well, you're leading into my next question is, so we have these two worlds. We have the world of Eve, the nurse, and and our surviving legacy characters. And we have Langley, Brianna, and Brad, and these other teenagers coming also to Smith's Grove for their own reason. Uh, Jake, what? why are these two groups, for their different reasons, sort of pilgrimage, taking a pilgrimage to Smith's Grove right now? You know, it's, so we have... It's it's a very uh, it's pretty simple. You've got the Brianna character who's best friends with Langley, and she's, you know, Halloween is banned in Haddonfield this night, this Halloween, and she wants to sneak off and go to Smith's Grove with her, you know, secret boyfriend. And the Smith's Grovers over there, Brad's buddies, they've got a whole tradition. You know, there's the captain of the football team has to do this. The head cheerleader carves the pumpkin. Captain of the you know basketball team does this they they set up a party in the institution it's a tradition they do every year so langley our lead our, you know our, our our main girl she's getting dragged into this as a favor because mm-hmm. you know a wild friend you know can't can't get away without her good you know the good girlfriend she can't get the permission and so it's just kind of a it's it's these two kids madly in love obviously making it so much more dramatic than it needs to be and the friends around them reacting to them. But I also wanted to play with, because it comes, you get it later with Chelsea and Langley where it's like, okay, I might've been a bitch to you all night, but we go to the same parties. You know, we know the same kids, we compete against each other. And I like that there's that turn between who we think is the bitch, but you know, they're just rivals. They're rivals. Mm -hmm. They're, they're good kids who know each other. So I think teenagers fall into that first. They fall into their role. And their role yeah. is we're arriving schools. But like they've probably been to a debate meet together and they probably hung out for a few hours, bored and had a good laugh. So I wanted to take those kind of stereotypical characters that are that are leaning forward in the teen world and then kind of break it down and just make it realize, hey, we're all we're all 17. We're all we're all here to have a good time. And then yeah. here comes Mike. And then they we, yeah. Yeah. And then and off then them. Mike, one, Mike one has an even better yeah. time. Um, yeah. There are some uh, pretty grisly death set pieces in this film. I think my favorite has to be the moment where someone gets a needle right into their ear. Because that real that ear stuff is something I have a hard time with. Um, which character are we seeing here? It's one of the boys. Brad. Brad. Yeah. Yeah. It that that really messed 
with my mind. Nick, do you have any like standout grisly moments in the script? Yeah, I put in my notes, and again, it just, just ties into what I said a moment ago, but uh, just uh, the the sequence with Brianna and Michael at the one-way mirror, you know, like, it's it just that kind of the the suspense and how he's literally mirroring her and kind of stalking her and, and that whole sequence uh, really, really, um, really comes off the page yeah. and is so well handled. Um, the... Uh, I, why am I forgetting his name? The the groundskeeper. Ty. Um, oh, Ty. <laughs> Dirtbag. I like Ty. <laughs> uh, uh, like, yeah, yeah, he you know he he's he's definitely one of those ones where you're like, oh, I can't wait for the body count to add him. <laughs> um, that was fun. Uh, and by the way, this is not totally answering your question, Josh. But a minute ago, I, I looking at my notes again, I do like some of the callbacks you put in there, Jay, because there's a scene where Eve looks out the window and sees Michael standing next to the car. And then she turns away and looks back and he's gone. Right. Like those little, again, those just little mirroring of the original. Um, as you said, that's a nice fan service. And it's also just suspenseful in and of itself for people that aren't, um, um, you know, don't know the franchise as well. So, but I would say um, that Brianna sequence at the mirror to, to go back to answer your question, Josh, he is, like, is my favorite. He ends up like, like pulling her through the yeah, broken glass, impaling right? her, impaling yeah. her on the broken glass of the mirror. It's great. <laughs> What's wrong with you, Jay? You know, it <laughs> hurt you. I was gonna try to do the the, the very classy, no, minor kills, and then it was like, uh-huh. wait a minute, it's an abandoned mental institution. Like, yes, <laughs> go. Which, which, yes, and that's what you you. That's what I mean. You utilize the space a lot, and you design that. Which again, we can get to later. Which plays in the first scene, but that hallway where. There's a chain link fence down the middle and the, the inmates mm. walk on one side and the uh, guards walk on the other. And there's a, you know, they, they're chained and it kind of rolls down the ceiling. So you use that later. Again, that, that set up in the beginning and it plays later. That's a great sequence. And, and another one, I know I'm jumping ahead, but the, the tubs, oh. the tubs with the dirty, we'll get to that later. Cause you have it in your notes, Josh. It's my but, favorite part yeah, of the film. It, again, oh, Jake is very, crazy. very good at that. It's this, it's not just the, the characters of course, and the story, but, he designs really great sequences that are set up yeah, to be suspenseful. The whole setting and, is beautiful. Like, yeah, yeah. All of Smith's, like, we have a really good reason for Smith's Grove to be, like, decorated. Yeah. And, like, there's just tea lights lighting the scene. And you, it's just gorgeous, but, like, scary. But before we get to that moment, because yes. that's my favorite part, do you have any favorite <laughs> instances of violence in this script, Jake? Does anything, was anything especially fun to create? Yeah, you know, uh, um... I'm a big, I really enjoyed when I reread it. Um, just like Nick was talking about, just the hallway, the patient hallway with a chain link fence, you know, the kind of hole in it so you can pull them by the chains. It's a simple beat, but one of my favorites is when we're meeting Eve as a young candy striper. And just that, it's that scene where we figure out how Michael escaped to begin with in part one. I just and he's in the darkness and getting pulled by the chains and you know I thought it's not exceptionally violent but I thought that was good and I but I would agree with you my the scene that was terrifying to even write was the tub <laughs> scenes oh the tub I thought you were going to agree with me with the the ear uh <laughs> do you guys remember there's a scene I think it's Freddy's dead where he like s- stabs someone in the ear with a really long Q-tip and it's just yeah, any ear puncturing is just gnarly. Oh, you feel it. God. When you see it, you you feel it. It's so visceral, you know? So fucked up. Um, yes. I wonder if this is time for us to get to that 
Okay, you know, I think before we get to the bathtub scene, there's something I just want to clear up, which is we've talked a little bit about how Michael lives here, right? Like this is Michael's headquarters when he's not sort of Santa Claus going to Haddonfield <laughs> once a year. Right. And Brianna, not Brianna, you know, Eve, our nurse Eve is sort of making her way through here and sees like she finds all of the information for all of the survivors and all of their addresses and lists of their greatest fears and their mother's addresses. Like, so (laughs) Michael Myers has collected basically all of this. And did he find all of that here? You know, that's, that's what I'm alluding to. Yeah. Uh This is where he lives. That's why he knows it so well. He's here more than anywhere, you know, scurrying through the halls. He knows what doors work, what doesn't. And, you know, He's gotten into the file cabinets. What you know, he's got killed a lot of time in this in this institution. So, yeah, I thought, and like I said, I just one of the things I thought is that if we're gonna if we're gonna take a step sideways to reinvent a new mythology that honors the original, but it gives us a whole another side story to Mike Myers, um, while bringing in all those legacy characters. Well, I figured we had the opportunity to learn. Don't you want to learn something new about Mike while he's still Mike? I thought there was something cool about the notion of not only is he a monster, he can read and he can plan. Mm -hmm. And for me, putting that into Mike Myers and, you know, the movie doesn't rely on that. We just give you little bits of it, but enough to question, can he read? You know, oh, my Mm -hmm. God, is he really is this a bigger plan? I just think. A monster with a mind is is or giving him more of a mind was going to be a lot of fun to play with, and was going to give the franchise a lot of room to play and, 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 and drive and a purpose. You know, Jake talked about that earlier, right? Where it's and again, I've seen plenty of slasher movies where they are just arbitrarily killing kids for whatever reason, but here there is a, as Jake said, a method to his madness. Right? He's looking to clean up and and get rid of everybody that's gotten a, you know gotten away from him in the past which I think gives it a little bit more of an engine, a little more of a narrative thrust. Um, yeah. As opposed to Jim just, just, and by the way, there are random body count kids too. You kind of get a little bit of both. You do. The, the Smith's Grove kids just walk into, Smith's Grove kids just walk into the asylum and, you know, wrong place, wrong time. So you do get that classic, you know, kids, uh, you know, kids partying and getting off, but also mm-hmm. Michael does have a, uh, a pathology here and a, and a reason for doing what he's doing, which I think adds a nice, a nice layer to it. So I think this kind of leads us to what I consider to be, I guess, a bit of the finale set piece, which we're talking about, which is this electro shock, electroshock therapy clinic. Jake, can you just sort of uh, paint us a picture? Um, yeah, you know, there is, there's something to me about um, older mental institutions that just it's they're just so terrifying the techniques that they used to do do to people and in 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 the name of curing them or helping them it's it makes my skin crawl and i did a lot of research for this particular film um this was kind of in an in an era where a lot of hospitals were shutting down for funding issues and and so there were a lot of these places that were being abandoned and and one of the things, some of the images that I saw and that were real um, are the electroshock therapy rooms. I can't imagine 
I fathom that 30 years ago, they were doing this to people like doctors were doing this to people. And it just freaked me out. It really, really disturbed me. And there's something I love about in the set piece of this institution that society has moved on, but we're, we're seeing the rusting antiques of these archaic versions of medical help and medical treatment. And I just thought that for, you know, one of them being, they would put people in these rooms, in these bathtubs, basically rooms filled with bathtubs and fill them up with water. And sometimes they would put plastic over the top and put you in naked and then they would shock you in the tubs. And it's, it's so, so freaky and it happened in real life. And uh, so I just thought we're doing, we're setting this here. I was looking at set pieces of what, you know, of corroded versions of these old techniques um, for Michael to enjoy. And when I saw that image, I'm, I'm, I just, I couldn't help it. I'm like, yeah, this is, this is just going to be a field day for Michael Myers. For Michael Myers. <laughs> it's so visceral and gross. And almost one of the grossest parts for me is the dirty water. That's right. for some reason is still there. Yes. Yeah. Is the, yeah. The I mean, that's what tub. it is, right? Yeah. To paint the picture, it's all these, yeah, the old, you know, quote therapy tubs, right. <laughs> lined up in a room uh, full of just old brackish, you know, fetid water, black, right? I mean, you can't even Ooh. see through it. So uh, in order to elude Michael, one of our, you know, our uh, Langley, right? It's not Eve yeah. Langley, has to submerge herself. Yeah, I mean, it's just, um, and hold her breath while he stalks the room. I mean, it's just a really nice, it's just a really nice uh, suspenseful sequence and, and gross, right? When you see her, you know, you can imagine in the theater, if the movie ever got made, that when she dips herself into the water, everybody goes, Ooh. oh, God. Yeah. One it's, of those, right? It's, it's uh, yeah. Would you agree it kind of has a similar energy to the cafeteria sequence in Halloween H2O, where she's hiding under, under the tables? The tables? Yeah. 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 Very yeah, much yeah, yeah. so. A same kind of like intensity. Because right. Michael sometimes is, is quiet and we're not getting to see a lot of him. But when he's like full force, angry, and showing you his strength, like it can be quite scary. And yes. this is when we get to see it the most, I think, in this script. Yes. Yeah, great, um, great sequence. I, I I put that in my notes too. I, I remembered it even before yeah. I reread it, but rereading it was a was a real pleasure. Yeah, I'd love to see this someday, but we'll get to that in a second. <laughs> uh, I want to before we get to like the very end, something like I kind of even forget on this read. Sheriff Brackett, how do we wrap up with him? Um, Sheriff Brackett, he gets impaled. Uh oh on a wall and then pulls Michael into the same pole that he's impaled on. Right. And then our final girls, even Langley run out. The cops are there. It's you know, get him, get him. He's still alive. Um, and we see them rolling out Michael Myers on a gurney. So it's the first time we've seen this image. Oh my God, they're going to take him to a hospital. And, when the gurney approaches our final girls, we see it's actually Sheriff Brackett. So he isn't dead. He might still, you know, of course he would, he, if the movie got made, he would survive. He's our new, you know, Donald Pleasant, but, and Michael is gone. They only, when the, when the paramedics went in, they found one body, not two on that pole. And it, and it's just such a satisfying, more so than some of the other scripts that, that much more so than some of the other scripts where Brackett was brought back. He gets such a more satisfying arc here. I mean, he, you know, earlier on in the script, he goes into the current sheriff's office, you know, and of course is ranting about Michael coming back. So he's 
on the other end of that transaction, right? Obviously, in the first one, it's Pleasance who comes in and says, oh, you got to, you know, search the town for me. You know, now he's the one saying he's going to come back. And the current sheriff is like, dude, I get it. You know, you're obviously you've okay, been through Graham, a lot. Go back right. to bed. Yeah. Right. You know, um, but, um, you know, eventually Brackett makes his way to Smith's Grove. And, and just to go back a little bit too, like Eve is also there. So Eve and the kids have these kind of parallel tracks where Eve's been in the asylum and they all kind of converge at the end where Langley and Eve meet up. Uh, Brackett is there and Brackett gets that awesome moment where he gets to shoot Michael Myers, right? I mean, it's just so, you just want that for him so badly because again, you know, it, he's just, as Jake said, he's paid the ultimate price. He's lost his child to this guy. So he gets that really satisfying moment where he shoots Michael and they even acknowledge it's so great bracket says you know don't go over and look he's not going to be there he's not going to be there these people are so fucked up and so traumatized and they are you know so aware of how he's usually not there after you kill him yeah it's it's just a great moment i love this sort of self-referential oh the uh, self-aware stuff is so funny you know there's another moment where a character's like he's gonna pop up yes he's just gonna pop up (laughs) yes and he does right after that yeah because then somebody walks up to him like no 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 don't he's gonna pop up he's gonna jump up and it's just great it's just uh it just adds to the, you know, because again, assumedly, if the movie gets me, the audience is right there with them, right? They're like, yeah. no, 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 don't go, don't go there, don't go there. So um, that whole sequence is great. And yes, Bracket gets the hero moment where he's, yeah, there's like a piece of broken railing somewhere in the, in the aside, they're fighting. And yeah, he gets impaled and then he pulls Michael onto the same, you know, broken pole. It's so fucking great. And you really want that for the Bracket character. Um, but smartly, obviously, uh, he's, you know, left to live. So we could mm-hmm. hopefully have brought him back for more, which we never got the chance to. But yeah, really great arc and, and you know, storyline for Bracket in this one. We've talked about a number of films called Halloween Retribution. And offline, Nick, you were saying this movie really could have used that subtitle. Is it because of this moment with Bracket? Well, okay, that's great. Yes, for one of the reasons, right? So... The other project that was called Halloween Retribution, there really is, there was no arc of retribution. It was really just more of like him offing a little bit, right? With, with some of some those, but like this one felt like Michael's retribution to, you know, to kill the, was to kill the survivors. I Brackets was to kill Michael. It just, that title felt more fitting to this movie. Um, not that The Missing Years isn't fitting, but uh, I don't know. Like this one felt like it spoke more to this idea of Michael trying to get back and, 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 uh, you know, not right the wrongs. What's the word I'm like, phrasing, you know, and trying to, to, to check all the boxes. Yeah. Yeah. Wrap it up in a nice neat package. So (laughs) that was him looking for his retribution and obviously bracket looking for his retribution. So yeah, I, I felt retribution would have been more apt title for this one. Uh, I'm wondering how this all ends. Who are the survivors at the end of the day, Jake? You know, it's 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 Eve, it's Langley, um, and you know Michael and Brackett, basically. Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody else is gone, so it kind of by the end of it, you've got your you've got your your new you know you know your new pieces set yeah. up for a whole new version of a Michael franchise. You know, for the Smiths. And now he's got to go clean up that mess. You know, now yeah. he's got to go kill those survivors. And and by the way, there is a nice moment too, um, where Langley's like, "Wait, wait, wait! Why me though? I'm not a survivor." And then she realizes she is a survivor because she survived the night that she was babysitting Lindsay's kid. Yes, it's right, which it's is an interesting twist, right? Because Langley literally goes, "Why me?" Because like Eve kind of breaks down for her, like, "Oh, he's going after all these people that survived previous killings," and she's like, "Well, I've never, you know, 
madam what, what's yeah i've never encountered him and uh she says no you weren't ba- weren't you babysitting you did her? you did encounter yeah him. and so she was a survivor it's just a nice little it's like, funny to think that he did intend on killing her then he just yeah. it just didn't he didn't get the moment it's so scary no, no but jay's right so the idea of even scarier yeah and now you have these new this new band of survivors to you know again which in, in all perfectness would have started a whole new storyline but you know yeah. it, didn't, it didn't come to pass and there's one there's, i think it's one of the last lines if not the last line where it's like there's some things worse than dying or, or can someone help me out here yeah um yeah i should be able to i mean i wrote it i, I think i have it too, but <laughs> yeah you just wrote it <laughs> yeah you know big deal. 20 years ago though um but no it's something like you know sometimes there's sometimes it's it's worse to survive yeah yeah yes. well, there yes. are worse things than death and i think yeah always being aware that Michael Myers will get you eventually could be one of those things. Yeah. So even if you were like the guy in the hospital that slips and, you know, and knocks yourself out, you still survived and he's still going to come for you. Ugh. No matter, you know, how small your little near misses. Has a bit of a final <laughs> destination vibe to it. In a way. Yeah. 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 Um, What a fun script. What a treat to be able to read this. So thank you both for that experience because as a fan that was pretty sacred um, i was i was stoked you had it jake yeah because I, I, yeah. I emailed jake a couple weeks ago and it's like by any chance do you have this because josh and i you josh you and i started to talk about it so yeah it was a real treat to you know as i put it before like it's like seeing an old friend you know like mm-hmm. it just was a real a treat to read it and i hadn't read anything I, or I hadn't read that script in yeah 20 years or so now a question that i always ask on this podcast is is there any chance in the world that we could see an iteration of this hit the screen? I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to send that to both of you. Is there any world where even aspects of the story might get shared with audiences? I mean, uh, okay. Sorry, this is Jake, a hard go one. Yeah, you go ahead, go I'm sorry. No, no, no. I, I interrupted you. I'm sorry. Um, I, here are my thoughts. Okay. Halloween, the missing years. Hey, there's a whole Smith's Grove version of the story you don't know. I think absolutely could. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think because of the remakes and the remakes erase, you know, the remake, the last version of, of the films erased, completely erased the, you know, the the mythology, most yeah. of it, you I know. Can, so yeah. I don't know. It's always a challenge with studios because, you know, I think what Nick and I ran up against back then, which was there's a lot of inside stuff in this script, you know, you know that your average moviegoer isn't going to get, but we were like, the fans will catch. If mm-hmm. we had that hurdle, then, you know, one would imagine it's almost impossible now because so much of the mythology has been erased. Mm-hmm. I mean, but it, where do you take the franchise next? You could still do the missing years, Smith's Grove version of it, and just kind of wipe out a few of the legacy characters. Because, like I said, this 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 new version of of the of the movie doesn't destroy anything in Haddonfield. It doesn't mm-hmm. touch. It. So yeah. who knows? Then I toss to Nick. He gets the business side better than I do. <laughs> I, I I definitely think. If there's any part of the Halloween world that should be explored, it is that yeah, the Smith's Grove element, or it's it's ripe 
for storytelling in, in my in my opinion. And I know they Miramax recently made the deal for the for the rights to Halloween to explore as like a, a connected universe. And that sounds to me like it'd be more television. So yeah, I mean I, I think if you open the format a little bit, and I agree, Jake, if you if you open up the format and you know start exploring an alternate timeline right there's a great youtube video that explores like all the different timelines of halloween because they're cool. it's all been bifurcated and split up but if you sort of just explored an alternate take of it and and you leaned into smith's grove uh and those years it's cool right i mean not that any what anything we're talking about would have been on the level of this movie but like at something like godfather 2 is so great because it is a prequel and a sequel at the same time right so like evil i love Dead the idea too. yeah like Kinda. the idea of sort of exploring michael's you know he was there for 15 years right exploring that while also trying to honor some new or you know honor that by also trying to introduce some new characters uh-huh. yeah so short answer is I, I think if there's any sort of new territory to explore it would be that smith's grove so yeah, I mean, there's always cool. a chance. So there, there's a whole universe there, right? So um, yeah, I, I think there's a chance. I'm usually pretty hard on the Rob Zombie films, but something <laughs> that you said last time, Nick, that kind of stuck with me was that, you know, going in the complete opposite direction tonally from the first film with the Rob Zombie remake was kind of almost like the perfect move in terms of tone because it's something we'd never seen before. Right. So my question for you guys is, tonally what direction would you want to see this franchise go in you want to start jake yeah you can go <laughs> uh well it's funny if, if if it if it you know you want to see it circle back then i mm-hmm. would love to see it go to a more suspenseful um you smaller know, le- yeah less gory like because again, the difference between Halloween one and two, the originals is funny because Friday the 13th came out in between the first two. So you noticed in Halloween two, the first Halloween two, the, the kills are gorier and more intricate or, or more elaborate. Sorry, you know, the dunking in the hot tub. I mean, I'm not I'm not arguing with it, that. Though. It's a great kill. But oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but so that's what I said last week. So like the only way to go, the only way to sort of remake John's version, John Carpenter's version was to go just with Rob's like insane aesthetic right where it's super gory and you just have to go the other way mm-hmm. so if you're asking me which you are i would love to see more of just that moody suspenseful um michael as a as a kind of mindless not mindless but just as a stalker as a lurking presence and that small town feel and it just should always feel it always take place in that small town and feel like halloween so but mm-hmm. not in a not in an elaborate kill you know, Rube Goldberg type kill way, yeah. but just a straightforward, um, really clean slasher movie. Yes, because the Blumhouse trilogy, they went huge, right? Like they almost became action-esque. So you're right, that they would did. be the opposite way. I mean, the first of the three, I thought did have some nice, again, Halloween-y moments. And I thought the first 10 minutes of Kills was fantastic. Um, I love Kills. But so. yeah, but yeah, and they sort of split the, they, they sort of split the difference, right? It had sure. elements of Carpenter, and it was also a little, you know, balls to the wall violent, but they like were Rob's big. movie. Like, yeah, they were not small. No, they. You're right. You're right. And I, 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 that would be the way I would go is to kind of go back to that lower body count, less gore, which I know is exactly the opposite of probably what fans want. But I'd love <laughs> to see it more of a, a back to that suspense and that 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 kind of dread and terror as opposed to just visceral gore. Uh, and Jake, what about you? Are we sending him into space? Like, where are we going? <laughs> no, summer camp. 
Oh, um, shit. No. <laughs> I, I, I actually 100% agree with what Nick is saying. I, I like, I, I still, I love, I love the small town feel. I love mm. the, I, I love the smaller the movie is, the more frightened I get because yeah. he can be anywhere. And, yeah. you know, he's, you know, it's, so that's the fun part for me. The, yeah. the bigger the movie is, the more populated it is, the, you know, busier it is. Just for me personally, as a horror movie fan, I'm not scared. I've right. got a million escapes I see around the characters. So, you know, I would agree. Taking it back down to that small, eerie, you don't have a lot of escape routes. You don't, got, there's not, a, there, you can't yell help, mm-hmm. you know, or you can, but there's not a lot of people that are going to hear you. I, I mean, I really like that I mean, small, claustrophobic. Yeah. Yeah. The first version. one, the Carpenter one, feels plausible, right? It feels real. It feels, you know, just more intimate. I know these are weird words to describe the movie, but no, like I agree. It, 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 you know, that's what really, and that's what scared the hell out of people. Right. But you know, is, is, is this could happen in your town. It's just a guy with a knife and he's out there and you know, there wasn't all this grander, you know, uh, yeah, this is grand big mobs of characters and all that. Cause I agree with Jake. Then it's like, it takes you in the movie a little bit. It becomes the moviness of the movie kind of comes through as opposed to just being in the story. And and fearing what's right outside your window, which is just so primal and basic, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if either of you have. I don't know. We even talked about this last week, but seen the Chucky TV series I on not. Sci-Fi. I have not. Sorry, my door. Good? Someone just slammed against my door. Uh, and... <laughs> sorry, Get out of here. 100% Michael Myers. <laughs> <Sorry God>. no. <laughs> Go on. I'm sorry. Uh, I think they really nailed it on the show, and I was that's something that I was not confident would be the case and i don't know i'd like to see sort of like a charming scary violent intimate sci-fi show yeah. <laughs> i think they could do it and it's they might with this new tv deal who knows what'll pop yeah. up i mean I, I but again i think there's definitely some avenues you could explore in the halloween universe to make a compelling mm-hmm. show like you know again something lo-fi and, and more intimate and and story and character driven and scary well, I think that brings us to the end. Indeed. Jake, my two questions for you are, what are you working on right now? And where can people find you on the internet if you were willing to be found? Ooh. Um, interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, currently right now, I uh, I just, I finished, oh, I finished uh, adapting Shirley Jackson's short story, The Lottery Whoa. for Paramount. So that was, that was a fun that was a fun experience. Um, I'm currently where I am right now because I'm working on um, kind of a big, uh, big kind of frightening, true um, limited series. So I can't really get into it, but it's a really uh, terrifying, compelling story that really happened. Um, I've got the blessing of the family of the victims. So I'm, that's what I'm, I'm kind of in the, the research phase of that one right now, working on it. So, and then the other small thing that I've been working on is it's really important to me to help the voices of tomorrow, the young voices out there. So I feel I didn't, I didn't have any connections when I got into this business. I did it all on my own. It was very, you know, it's hard to break in um, so I've been working on this, this organization called the script doctors. And what I'm trying to do is bring together working professional talents or, you know, writers of all voices, 
um, and, and pair them up with the new voices of tomorrow. So that's kind of, that's a new thing because that's, that's more um, procedural than it is just sitting in an office writing, but it's something I'm very, very passionate about. And um, the, I think the website's going to launch fairly soon and it's the script doctors, just scriptdoctors.com. Um, but you know, the kinks are still being worked out on that, but I, I would, I just love to like even doing a podcast. I, I, I love to share my experiences and like with Nick, you know, the stories we have and, you know, what we did and how we broke in and, and, you know, and also help young writers of tomorrow, like help them structurally with their scripts, help them, you know, make their scripts studio, you know, friendly because there are tricks. So anyways, that's something I'm kind of passionate about. That's, that doesn't have anything to do with, um, other than me wanting to help. So. Awesome. And where can we stalk you? Um, uh, I mean, I've got like a, you know, there's like a Jake Wade ball website. You can get it at my IMDB page. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I did do the Facebook and the socials and Mm -hmm. they're out there. I've, I I was one of those people who, after watching that documentary, was like, I'm not going to do it. (laughs) So I did that for about a year. But yeah, I'm I'm on Facebook. I'm on on, X, I guess, Mm -hmm. the the main ones. Okay. So he's being cagey and not giving us his address. Um, (laughs) uh, Okay. Well, Nick, for Uh, the dummies that didn't listen, uh, what are you up to and where can we find you? I know. Again, those sliver of people that did not listen get, last week um, who are somehow hearing this for the first time. Uh, no, first of all, I think the script doctors thing sounds great, Jake. I, I, I too like to, you get to a certain age, you try to, you know, try to impart some wisdom back to people. You'd like to think that you might know, I don't, you, know, you don't know everything, but you might know a thing or two about a thing or two. So, and there's obviously so many people coming up that are passionate about this business and want to try to, you know, and again, it's emerging voices. And, and I, I just, uh, that's great. I, I really support you on that one, man. That sounds awesome. Um, for me, it's funny. The most recent thing I've done that's coming out next would be a non-genre movie. Can I mention a non-genre piece that uh, I did a great movie last year? I helped finish it. It was being made, and I came on board late and helped uh, kind of see it through. It's a movie that David Duchovny wrote and directed, and he stars in it. And it's based on his book. Whoa. But uh, it's about estranged. It's set in the 70s, and it's about an estranged father and son. Uh, the dad's dying of cancer and they reconnect over baseball and they have this journey. Uh, and what's odd about the not odd, what's resonant for me about the movie is that I lost my own estranged dad uh, to cancer and he actually passed away while we were making the movie. So it's called uh, it's a, there's profanity in the title. It's called Bucky fucking dent, which is the name of a, of a baseball player with the F word stuck in between his names. Um, but really wonderful. It's a dramedy, right? It's, it's really poignant and funny and, heartbreaking and dramatic and all these things. And David's great. And then Logan Marshall Green and uh, Stephanie mm-hmm. Beatrice. Really excellent. It was at Tribeca earlier this year. And uh, I just heard that I actually got picked up for distribution. I was texting with, with uh, the director the other day. So that's the next thing I would have coming up. It, it is a drama. It's non-genre, but I do sometimes dabble in non-horror films. And when I do, it's it's always fun. But uh, at the end of the day, I always come back to my, to my number one love, which is horror. And as I mentioned earlier, I am starting now literally as we speak uh forming a new company with some some uh some collaborators a new genre label so i can talk more about that hopefully okay Nick, months. You have to yeah. let me know you have to let yeah. me know about that i am <laughs> gonna let you know about that i i will offline you about that for sure okay. but uh yeah so i have one uh, little movie coming out soon 
uh, but always, uh, you know, um, uh, but not always, but currently working on uh, on the next chapter in genre. So I'm stoked. Oh, and I uh, minimal social media footprint. I have a private Instagram account. It's Nicholas C. Phillips. And again, if you want to follow me, that's fine. But it's mostly pictures of my daughters or me, uh, you know, hanging around on a weekend or something. But I do cover some work stuff in there as well. So um, that's me. And yeah, you can watch out on the Development Hall Twitter feeds. We will dox them both. So watch out for that. Um, <laughs> Thank you both for this very awesome, insightful episode. As a horror fan, I'm sorry, but this was a bit of a dream come true. So I really appreciate it, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you, Josh. Thank you for Thank having Jake. us. Yeah. Awesome. Seeing you, man. Thank you so much for listening to Development Hell. If you enjoy this podcast, then please do us a major favor of leaving us five stars and writing a positive review. It really makes all the difference in the world. We'll see you next week with a brand new episode of Development Hell. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.